And it looks like looks like we're good, man. Give me one more. Looks like we're good. I hope that's the truth. If we're not good, then it's going to be bad. There is none good besides the Lord our God and Savior Jesus Christ. All right. Do it. Do it. Go for it. Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is our non-podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. Yes. Today's episode is about why we think you should devote yourself to being a lifelong student of theology. So make sure to listen to the whole podcast because at the end, we're going to introduce the vision of Porterbrook Quad Cities for our ongoing theological development in our local church. You don't want to miss that. So whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope this podcast helps you worship local. My name is Cole and I'm the lead pastor at Frontier and I'm hanging out with... I'm Andrew. I am the associate pastor at Frontier Church. So if you visit Frontier Church and you start to plug into Frontier Church, there's not a lot of time that's going to go by before you start to hear people talking about theology. We like theology at Frontier Church. You hear that word used a lot. I mean, right? I mean, in the broad spectrum of churches, bro, like you would agree that if you took a survey of all the churches out there, Frontier Church would be on the higher end of we love theology, right? Yeah, I would think so. We've got a lot of uh, a lot of people who have devoted their you know several years of their lives to formal academic theological training, and we've got a lot of people who just love studying theology. They love reading rich, difficult books written by really smart people, and they love to to, to talk about it and to use it for the benefit of our local church family. Yeah, and like at the same point in time, we do have a lot of like newer Christians or younger Christians who don't throw around the word theology a lot, and they don't have bookshelves that are full of systematic and biblical theology. And so we've got like the broad spectrum of people, but I think a lot of people are attracted to Frontier Church because of our theological rigor. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who said it, but there, you know, uh, it said that uh, every, everyone's a theologian. R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul. Yeah. I, couldn't remember. I, was like, I couldn't remember if it was him or Tozer who said that. But yeah, and that, that is true. Everyone has a has a God functionally in their lives, um, and we want to direct people to be good theologians of the triune God who has created the world and who rules and reigns over it. So we want to give them information. We want to point them to the scriptures because that shows us all of who God is as he's revealed himself to us. So here's a couple here's a couple definitions throughout history. Way, way, way back in the day, St. Anselm defined theology as faith seeking understanding. Or more recently, Millard Erickson called it the science of God. Or like you said, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Everybody's a Theologian. Or John Calvin famously began his Institutes of the Christian Religion by saying, All true knowledge consists entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So we're going to get to clarity here in a minute where we kind of define theology and, and why we think that we should study it and be lifelong learners of theology. But first, let's start kind of like with a heart question, man. Like when and how did you fall in love with theology, bro? I think... Probably the first moment that I saw theology and the study of the scriptures, the study of God, um, as beautiful is probably when I was a junior in high school. I think I was really wrestling with some with, with things in life, wrestling with is this actually my faith? Is this my parents' faith? 
do I believe these things just because I'm supposed to, or do I actually believe them? Oh, okay. You went through that in high school. Yeah, yeah, wow. in high school. You know, growing up, growing up in the church, um, you know, it was pretty much any time the church was open, I was in church, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, or you know, helping fold bulletins on a Friday so they could be handed out on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, in the church constantly, and so I think whatever. Yeah, when I was. Um, 17, I was like, man, do I actually believe this stuff? Do I actually love Jesus? Do I actually, um, have I actually given my life to this Jesus who my parents have told me all my life gave himself up for me? And so I went through that when I was 17 and it, I wasn't even a Christian at 17, <clears throat> man. And you're like, you're like going through an existential crisis. That's incredible. <laughs> I, yeah, man. I really was. And I went on a mission trip and the trip kind of fell apart. So what we wound up doing was uh, we went to a Hindu temple, a Buddhist temple, and to a, um, an Islamic cultural center. And we, so we got to ask those those religious leaders questions. And I started to think, what I believe isn't that crazy, I don't think. I think I actually do believe in Jesus. I think I actually do want to continue to follow Jesus. And so I just started getting all sorts of resources in my life, reading Piper, reading John Owen, got all into the Puritans. and it was, And so it was that that point of seeing these, seeing Piper especially, since he is still alive and breathing, how passionate he was about theology, how passionate he was about communicating mm-hmm. to others um, the glory of God through the preaching of the of the scriptures. And so that, that gave me a white-hot desire for theology. And honestly, like the past 18 months, two years, I've had a... a a rekindled affection for theology. And so that's been really cool. To, yeah. A resurgence to, to of that. that. Yeah. Yeah. When was it? When was that point where you were like, Oh, theology is beautiful. Theology is good. Yeah. Well, actually I was a junior too, but junior in college, <laughs> not in high school. <laughs> but I, I think that's kind of funny. Yeah. I was a junior in college. I had been following Jesus for, I don't know, a year or two at that point in time. And, um, I, I don't know, man, like I just, kind of thought that Christians were people who had blind faith and were, it seemed to me like a lot of Christians were rigorously devoted to anti-intellectualism, which was kind of getting tired for me, like just kind of getting tiring for me. And uh, I had a a buddy, uh, the dude who led me to Christ was just like, he was a rigorous thinker. He was the kind of dude who my freshman and sophomore year of college, like I kid you not, he was slamming Red Bulls and monster energy drinks on weeknights and staying up all night reading Grudem's systematic theology. <laughs> I didn't know, like, what a beast, dude. Like, I didn't know anybody like that in that particular time. But I I had kind of rejected that at first. I had kind of rejected an understanding of, I kind of rejected being devoted to theology as legalism for a couple of years because I didn't have a good theology of legalism. <laughs> um, or I kind of rejected a, a rigorous study of academic theology as, oh, that's because you don't actually trust Jesus. Mm. So I saw theology as, I, I saw theology wrongly as positioned against faith. Whereas like, obviously the St. Anselm quote that I read earlier sees them as intertwined with one another, that theology is actually faith that seeks understanding. So for me, like a tipping point for me in seeing theology as beautiful, and I've made, I have made a, no secret of this, was reading John Piper's Desiring God. Uh-huh. So I said, I, I sat down, opened up Desiring God. It was on, it was on my, my roommate's bookshelf, and, and I read this first page. I'll just read the page out loud. Here's how the book starts. The ultimate ground of Christian hedonism 
is the fact that God is uppermost in his own affections. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So as a junior in college, I'm already scratching my head. Mm -hmm. And Piper goes on to say, the reason this may sound strange is that we are more accustomed to think about our duty than God's design. And when we do ask about God's design, we are too prone to describe it with ourselves at the center of God's affections. We may say, for example, that his design is to redeem the world, or to save sinners, or to restore creation, or the like. But God's saving designs are penultimate, not ultimate. Redemption, salvation, and restoration are not God's ultimate goal. These he performs for the sake of something greater, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. So that's the first page. And I remember as a junior in college reading this and just thinking, I've never heard anybody talk this way about God. And so it almost kind of seemed to me like somebody threw open a door into a into the basement that I didn't even know existed. Uh-huh. So I was hooked, man. I it took like a couple days for me. No, a couple weeks for me to read Desiring God. But that was the first time where I saw like, oh my gosh, there is a design. There's a design in God creating our minds to be capable of thinking really, really deeply. Mm-hmm. And that design is to help us think critically and beautifully about the glory of God. Yeah, this was the other, uh, this is why I was getting Tozer and Sproul mixed up, because Tozer has this quote, and he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I remember hearing that quote and thinking, okay, this is actually important. Because yeah, I think what you were talking about, you've got some people who who I've heard literally tell me this, uh, I just need my Bible and Jesus, that's all I need. Right, right. And so it's a rejection of of. Uh, of a theological study of the scriptures because they believe that that would is either legalistic or um, you're just trying to get into an ivory tower and not actually uh, live a Christian life or actually see the beauty of the scriptures. You, you want to treat it as just a textbook. And that mm-hmm. definitely does happen totally, for sure. Totally. Yeah, and, that's possible. And I think it's just as bad as saying, I'm not going to study the scriptures at all. I'm just going to read a Psalm a day and then I'll be, you know, keep the sin away. Yeah, 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 yeah. For me, the working metaphor of understanding why theology of, is important is is marriage. Mm-hmm. It's a, like a, that's a really good working metaphor for understanding why it is that Christians devote themselves to a lifelong habit of being theologians. When when you say, so when you say things like, for instance, this is one that gets tossed around. When you say things like, Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about theology. The reason why you can say that is because you have a preconceived notion that God is not a person. Because mm-hmm. that doesn't, like, it, I can't say that, for instance, if I'm like, hey, to be honest with you, my relationship with Chloe is about marriage. It's not about knowing her deeply and knowing her truly. You would say that I'm crazy, yeah. right? And so, like, it's just natural that whoever we love and whatever we love, we want to gain the most crystal clear picture of that person so we can love them more. So in no way is... In no way is theology, um, it, in no way is it opposed to relationship. Mm-hmm. It informs relationship. Yeah, because that leads people to, people who I hear that sort of stuff from, that they are also the same group of people that say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Right, right. And you wouldn't tolerate someone saying that about your wife. Heck no, dude. Dude, I love you, uh, but I really hate Chloe. Like you're gonna start th- swinging hands. That's yeah, good. we got we got a problem, bro. Yeah. let's get the wrestling mat out. So, all these things are so, so interlinked. <laughs> um, sorry, I just remember when you were you were trying to buy a wrestling mat to put in your basement. Right. I know, just got a flashback there. I know that that dude sold it though. So, 
I wish, a, wish a that sad that update. But we'll see. Maybe <laughs> maybe the next time you come here, there'll be a wrestling mat. We can podcast on top of that. <laughs> I wouldn't be totally shocked. <laughs> so let's let's aim a little bit for clarity, man. Let let's work for a definition together of what theology is. Um, and maybe that'll give us more reasons for why we study it. Do you have a definition for theology? Um, if I were just sitting across the table from someone, just like I'm doing right now, I would say that that theology is the pursuit of understanding God as he has revealed himself to us. Um, so it's a pursuit. It never ends. Your study of God mm-hmm. never ends. So it's an active, ongoing process of understanding God as he has revealed himself to us. And the way that he's revealed himself to us um, is through creation, right? We see that in the scriptures, but also through the scriptures and also through the person and work of Jesus. That's how God has revealed himself to us. Um, so we we have to use the the, ins, the his inspired word to, to understand him. So that just at a really reductionistic level, that's how I would define theology. Like if I'm talking to, talking to one of my kids and I'm teaching them theology, we have this little book, um, that is called theo- theology for our kids. What well, was actually theology is what the the book is called. But I would talk to them about, hey, God has given us His Word. He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures, and so we get to understand God by studying the Scriptures, by reading it, by thinking through the time in which it was written, um, why it was written, and then we have all these resources. Some are really good and really helpful, and some are really bad and really unhelpful um, <laughs> to, to bring clarity in our minds to what the Scriptures are communicating. Yeah, so at a, at a technical level, you can break apart the word theology to understand and comprehend what it is. So um, what, like, what is the, where does the word theology come from? Well, theos is the Greek word for God, and ology is the Greek word for knowledge or mm-hmm. words. So like at a, really, at a really technical level, if you want to do it at a technical level, it just means knowledge of God. Um, when I asked you that question of like, how would you define theology? I actually opened up my Google Drive <laughs> and I Googled theology definition just to see if I've defined it in a sermon. Uh-huh. And so here's, 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 a, uh, here's a definition of theology that I gave in a sermon in 2016. See if I stand by it. <laughs> I said, theology is not information about God that makes us intellectually smart. It is transformational knowledge of God that changes our hearts. Yeah, I mean, I, I still agree with that. Theology making us intellectually smart and knowledge of God that changes our heart are not two separate things, though, Right. which it looks like I was trying to provide clarity on that. But I think I'd still agree that theology is transformational knowledge of God that changes our hearts. I always like to define things in terms of their relationship to the affections, mm-hmm. though. You know that about you oh, know that about me. I've noticed it a time or two. So here's a couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's here's a here's a couple. Um, so to help us gain a greater understanding of theology, here's here's a couple. This is just a couple grids for us to think through. If if we think of theology as truth minus affections, that's actually dead orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So it's not biblical theology. If this is you, then what happens is you run the risk of becoming what I'd call an upper body theologian, right? You have a ripped intellect, right? A muscular brain, but your heart has chicken legs. You see these guys in the gym, right? The dudes who skip leg day, <laughs> they're all upper body, but no leg day. Uh-huh. That's, that's kind of like truth minus affections. But the other thing that we're also talking about is affections minus truth. 
that equals lively idolatry. Mm -hmm. So that's also not a biblical understanding of theology. So if this is you, um, then you might have a great prayer life. You might have thunderous affections for God, but those prayers and those affections aren't actually directed towards the person that God has revealed himself to be because they're not actually devoted to true information about who God is. So you run the risk of being lively idolatry with those. Mm -hmm. But the right equation that we want is truth plus affections. That equals biblical theology. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think for sure with, with those different groups of people, you would nuance your definition of theology, which is what you're doing that, in that sermon. You're ad addressing you know, the different groups of people that exist in every church. You got the big big theology heads and then you've got those people can have tiny little missionary hands and mm, not mm -hmm. not share the scriptures with others uh, to lead them to Christ or you've got people with you know they've got the big working hands of the Christian but their brains are they've got really small theological he <clears throat> heads and yeah, so you, yeah, that's right. we, you we, we really want to form well-rounded Christians and we think that proper theology is the way to go about that yeah 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 like the the affections minus truth guy if we're going to use the working metaphor of if we're going to use the working analogy of marriage, that might be the guy who is really, really eager to take his wife out on a date. He's really, really eager to get her gifts. He's really, really eager to experience marital intimacy with her. He's really, really eager to buy her flowers. But he doesn't want to sit down and actually listen to her. Mm -hmm. And we're saying that the, the right approach to theology is truth plus affections. Yes. Understanding God truly, but also aiming to understanding him in a way that transforms our knowledge of him and love of him. Mm -hmm. But this is practical. Yeah. Like it, it very, very, very much affects the way that you read your Bible if you have a theological grid for things. So I want to work our way through four or five different examples of how having a theological grid for the Bible informs the way that you read the Bible. So let's Let's start, let's start here. The first example I want to do is if, if you don't have a theological grid of the Bible, if you don't believe in theology, I want to show you how you can end up thinking, oh, then the Bible is full of contradictions. So here's, here's example number one. In, in 2 Samuel 24, it says this, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Here's First Chronicles 21, recounting the exact same event. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. So both of those texts in the Bible, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, are talking about the same thing. David taking a census of Israel. But in one of them... It's the Lord who incites David to take a census. And the other one, it's Satan inciting David to take a census. So if you don't have a theological grid of God, you look at those things and you say, oh, that's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And this is disastrous, right? If you think that that's a contradiction, this is a disaster. So you end up going down a rabbit trail of thinking, oh, well, then if I can't trust this, then can I really trust the Bible for salvation? And, and if I can't trust the Bible for salvation, is it really inerrant? And if it's really not inerrant, then did it come from the mouth of God? See, we found a contradiction. Let's just throw it all away. Yeah, and you see that, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've heard this one um, used and brought up in debates between uh, two different Christian camps and then also atheist and Christian debates. Um, yeah. They love to bring these up. They want to, they think they've 
they found some some inconsistency and they say, oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can't trust Throw this it all thing. Out. Get rid of all of this because this one thing is wrong, and that is bad theology, right? So we've got two different texts that are that are talking about the same situation, but they're going about it in a in a different manner. They're trying the, to communicate the same thing, but in different yeah. ways, right? And these, yeah, because these biblical writers are fully aware of the writing of one another, mm-hmm. and they know that they're not contradicting one another. So what's going on here? Yeah. So. Yeah, so having a, a good theology here will lead you to believe, okay, are they both true? Well, if they're both true, then how? Yes, yes. So it's, you know, if <clears throat> if I wanted to um, get, if I wanted to clean up the floor, and there, my kids had some toys there, and Tracy and I talked about, yeah, we got to clean up the floor because, um, because we're going to have some guests over for dinner. And so I clean up a little bit of it, and then I also task Lydia, my oldest child with, hey, Lydia, clean these toys up. If Tracy comes in the room and says, who cleaned these up? We both raise our hands and say, we did. We, I cleaned it. Or if Tracy talks to me and says, hey, did you clean that thing up? Yeah, I cleaned it up. Did I clean it up entirely? No, I also used my daughter to accomplish the task. Tracy right. can go to Lydia and say, hey, did you clean up? Oh, no, dad cleaned up too. Um, I, I used Lydia to go about the task of cleaning up the floor. We both were active in that work, but I used her to clean up certain things and I cleaned up certain things, or maybe I even just told her to clean all of it up. But if Tracy said, Hey, did it, did the, the floor get clean to say, yeah, I got it taken care of. What am I, am I saying that I did the work? No, I'm saying I made sure that the work got done. Right. Right. And I, this is, this is a great example because what Tracy doesn't do and what so many of us do with the scriptures, but Tracy doesn't do in this situation is Tracy doesn't throw her hands up and say, well, I can't trust you at all. I got to get out of this covenant. Right. I can't, I can't trust you. You lied to me. Yep. She's like, no. There's a more complex, nuanced understanding of what's going on here. And so particularly for us as Reformed Christians, we have a well-studied theological grid to apply to what looks like a supposed contradiction. We have a big, full-orb theological understanding of God's sovereignty, which is God's absolute control over all of reality through primary and secondary means of achieving these things. Mm -hmm. So we look out into the world and we don't ask the question, is God sovereign over this? We ask the question, in what way is God sovereign over this? Mm -hmm. And so one thing you see, particularly through the book of Job, is that God uses the accuser as an instrument for accomplishing things in reality. So that is fully fully compatible with this supposed contradiction in in Samuel and Chronicles right here. Mm -hmm. Both of them are true. They're meant to be held together and form theology. God is inciting David to take this census, and he is using Satan to incite David to take this census to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, he's got a complete, he has complete control over this situation and over this event, and he uses multiple means of bringing his will to fruition. We see that over all of creation, over all of humanity. We see, you know, in in Genesis where uh, Joseph's brothers they they throw him in a in a well, then they sell him into slavery. A lot of events unfold. His brothers mm-hmm. and his father and his people need food, so they go down to Egypt, and oh, Joseph is there and he's in power, and his brothers are scared. Oh, he's gonna you know he's gonna execute us. He's gonna get rid of us. But Joseph is able to say what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm-hmm. So who sold Joseph into slavery? Was it God or was it his brothers? 
Yes, is yes, the answer. Yes. So, so yeah, you're able to see that because if you don't, then you're, well, what is, is is Joseph like? Is he just making up some stuff to make his brothers feel good? No, he understands that that God used his brothers' wickedness and their jealousy because of their father's favoritism um, for for Joseph. Uh, God used that to ultimately save his people. There's so many. There's a million things going on in Joseph's life and in his brother's life that that God orchestrated and used to preserve his people. If if they hadn't, yeah, if yeah. Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery and been given a place of prominence in Egypt, Israel would have starved. Right. So God yeah. used this wickedness of man to save his people. And church, here's here's why this is so important, and here's why we're so passionate about it. Because as you continue to follow Jesus throughout your entire lifetime, and as you continue to plumb the Bible for the depths of knowledge in it, you are going to bump into statements in the Bible that look like supposed contradictions. We want you to be well-equipped to handle these nuances and these complexities. And when you have a theological understanding of the sovereignty of God, all of a the sudden, these supposed contradictions aren't attacks on your faith, mm-hmm. right? They're not like huge crises that you bump into when you see two things in the Bible that seem to be saying two different things. Instead, when you do theology, it almost it almost becomes fun to seek out these supposed contradictions, to hold them together, and to say, in what ways do these two things belong together? It almost becomes enjoyable. Yeah. Well, and you look at the crucifixion of Christ, and we see that there are several... Um several criminals who are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. We see in Isaiah that mm-hmm. it's the father who is pl- pleased to crush him. Right. We see uh, the Roman authorities, they are they are the ones actively putting the, ha- the nails in the hands and feet of Christ. We see the Jewish leaders that the apostles preached against and said, you crucified him because you're a stiff-necked people. And then we also see that's because of our, our personal sin that Jesus had to be crucified for us to to be atoned for our sins to be atoned for, so that we could be forgiven. So there's there's several different um, mm-hmm. agencies involved in the crucifixion of Christ. Which one is true? They're yeah. they're all true. God was sovereign over right. over His own plan and over the actions of the religious leaders, over the Roman Empire, and over over every Christian, over every human who has has sinned. He's sovereign over all of that. He uses yeah. all of it, and, cul- and it all culminated in the in the crucifixion of Christ. It was all a part of his plan. This is why we study theology. Yes. This is why we study theology. So when we look at these things, we don't say, oh, there's a contradiction. Mm-hmm. But instead, we look at these things and say, wow, this is a many-faced diamond that deserves to be examined from several different angles so that we can enjoy God more. Yes. Here's another example. Um Exodus 14. This is, oh man, I love it. Dude, you're going you're gonna to love this one, okay? So in Exodus 14, um, Israel has just been freed from their Egyptian slavery, and they are heading out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends his armies after him. So Exodus 14, verse 19 says this, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So if I don't study theology, then what I'm picturing in my head is, okay, so they're being, you know, Israel is being chased by, um, they're being chased by Egypt right now, and they're about to, you know, bump into the Red Sea. And so what happens is this kind of angel flies out of the sky, because that's what I think about angels. 
if I don't if I don't do biblical theology, then I think that okay, well that's cool. Like this little fat baby with angels' wings and a really pretty face, all of a sudden comes down and stands between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Then I keep reading. But what happens if we have a theological understanding of what the Bible says about angels? How does that change the way that we view Exodus 14, verse 19? Oh, man. So this is such a good one um, <laughs> that we, I wish we could have covered a lot more in our Exodus sermon series. But this is something that's really amazing that um, has been in the Bible since it was written. And mm-hmm. I had walked right over it a thousand times in so many different portions of the scriptures. And so... This kind of was tied in with what I was talking about earlier, the rejuvenation of my love for theology. As we see, this yes, dude. angel is is distinct. It's not like the rest of the angels. So we get the word angel. Um, also, we see in the scriptures the word messengers is using. So the, so the word malach is used for angels and for messengers. So like my son's name is Malachi. That, that means my messenger. That's what that name means. Um, but we see that there is this this one angel, this one malak, that is unique, that is special, that's set apart for certain tasks. And we see this angel being referred to as the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. He first comes onto the scene in the burning bush episode. We see the angel of the Lord. We see we see the angel of Yahweh, and we see Yahweh present in this burning bush event, where Moses is is communicating with Yahweh, but there's Yahweh who's talking to to Moses, but the angel of the Lord is also there, and he's also talking um, with Moses. Um, so, so if you see this, you can one just look at it as, oh, this is just you know some other angel. It's not that big of a deal. It's just another one of God's messengers. Um, or you can say, this is um, we're we're trying to confuse things here, and we're gonna we're we're venturing out of the the bounds of monotheism, where we're trying to make two gods present here. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> So the interesting thing is that in ancient Judaism, they had a theology called the two powers of heaven or Jewish binitarianism is another term for it. But there, there are these two, two Yahweh figures in, in all throughout the Old Testament narrative. You see this in, in um, Isaiah's vision. You see this come up with, with some of the prophets. You see this come up with, with Abraham. There is the angel of Yahweh who is there. And so some people just, just think that this is... Um, God talking in, in several different ways. Um, but if you view this as there is Yahweh and there's the angel of Yahweh, what do you, what do, you do with that? What is Jude talking right. about when he says Jesus brought them out of Israel? How does Jude, how's Jude making that claim? Well, as <clears throat> Judaism continued to develop and when Jesus came, he was the Messiah, he fulfilled all this stuff and revealed to people that all of the scriptures were pointing and leading to, to him, um, we can look back at this angel of Yahweh and say, this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Right. That feels really weird and icky to say sometimes. But that, that's, that's what's being talked about here. There is the angel of Yahweh who is the, the presence of Yahweh. You'll also see the angel of Yahweh being referred to as uh, God, Yahweh saying, I have put my name in him. Right. I have put my word in him. Um, and so Jews to this day will refer to Yahweh. They don't say Yahweh. Uh, that's you know disrespectful for them. So they'll say Hashem, which is the name. So they'll refer to Yahweh as the name. We don't want to name the name, but he is the name. So 
for Yahweh to say, I'm going to put my name in this, this angel, or my name is in this angel, there's a distinction there. Right. He is putting his personhood in this angel. Right. So Yahweh shows up in the form of, of a man sometimes. He shows up where, where God's people hear him, they see him, they communicate with him, um, and there's a distinction in there. So it's Yahweh taking on the, the image of flesh in these, um, in these certain instances in the Old Testament. So that leads you to Jesus and the importance of Jesus, the, the God incarnate, the word in flesh. The right. word took, up, took on flesh and tabernacled with us, dwelt with us. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Jesus seems to be cueing off of the Old Testament angel of the Lord and even patterns his life and ministry after the angel of the Lord. Like, I find this interesting, for instance, the first time that the angel of the Lord appears in the scriptures is in Genesis 16. This is verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, this is Abraham's wife, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Who's one of the first people in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals himself to? The woman at the well. Mm -hmm. So he seems to be patterning his life off of the angel of the Lord, pointing back and saying, hey, you remember the angel of the Lord who revealed himself by meeting a woman at the water in the wilderness? I was, I'm that angel. Yeah, and you you see it. So um, here's a quote from Michael Heiser. He says, many Bible teachers hesitate to identify this angel, the angel of Yahweh, as God himself, but there are several secure indications that he is. Perhaps the most important happens shortly after God gives the law to Moses, as the Israelites prepare to journey to the, onto the promised land. God tells Moses, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So this angel has the the authority of Yahweh, the power Mm -hmm. of Yahweh, the importance of Yahweh. So it's it's Yahweh who has put himself in, in this angel. And so... Obey his voice. That means you could hear the voice of the angel, and he was communicating Yahweh's purposes and plans with the authority of Yahweh. Not just being commissioned by Yahweh, but being Yahweh in in an angel. And so, yeah, you see Christ pattern his his ministry after this because that was Christ in the Old Testament. He's doing the same thing. He's on the same exact mission. And so whenever he's having these interactions with people, healing people, um, uh, coming to people in supernatural ways, communicating with people. He's what he's doing is signaling to to humanity is that I'm still here. I am working. I am doing things in particular ways. So he's just he's imaging to them. I am the angel of Yahweh. This is who I am. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I I wonder how much Jesus's language of follow me is rooted in angel of the Lord stuff in Exodus because. You know, one of the main roles, like you just read, of the angel of the Lord in Exodus is to lead God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. That is Jesus's main role in our life. As we follow him and obey him, he leads us to the promised land. He leads us to the heavenly realm. He leads us to new creation. So it's, it's amazing, man. Yeah. I could go on for this for for a long time because it's <laughs> yeah. it's really important. It's really important to see that and to not discredit it. Um, 
Jews after Jews, they had several different texts of the, the Torah floating around. Um, and coincidentally, they got rid of the text that talked about the two powers of heaven or the, the two angels or the angel of Yahweh. Uh oh. Right around the time that Christ had been resurrected. Uh oh. So they, there was this new movement that was branching out of Judaism. These these messianic people um, are talking about this this Jesus who claims to be God incarnate. So they have to get rid of get rid of all this language that could point to um, the fact that Jesus was the angel of Yahweh, who had come, who had lived a human life, died a, died a death, and was resurrected. Uh, a Jewish scholar, I can't remember when it was, but it, really recent in the in the scope of Jewish and, and Christian history. Um, this is a Jewish guy, not a Christian, but he wrote a book on Jewish binatarianism. He said, we used to believe this stuff, but we got, we got rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting that they had to, had to stop using that language, had to stop reading these texts in a particular way so that they could discredit the, the movement of these people who were following the Messiah, Jesus. So this is why theology is important. If you don't have this theological grid of the angel of the Lord, then when you read a text like Exodus 14, you just kind of imagine this Western understanding of an angel, this pretty chubby with wings thing flying down and just kind of like standing at the backside of God's people. But if you have a biblical understanding of the angel of the Lord, all of a sudden this scene is like straight from an action movie. It's BA. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you see Christ himself stand in the gap between the people of God and the enemies of the people of God and protect the people of God from Mm -hmm. that. And you're like, whoa, dude, that is sweet. Yeah. And if Exodus, the what we read in Exodus and the Exodus of God's people is is a foreshadowing of the Christian coming out of slavery to sin into God's kingdom, then that is so powerful to, to view that, of the angel of Yahweh, pre-incarnate Christ, leading the people out of Egypt and protecting them. We can say, that Jesus is doing that for me right now. He did that for me. He's continuing to protect me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing and so beautiful. So let's do let's do another one here. This is um um which one do you want to do? Do you want to do the Genesis one example or do you want to do the James and Romans example? Let's do Genesis one. Let's do Genesis yeah. one. Okay. Um, so look at Genesis one verses one through three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, you can read the rest of the creation account, and and many of you guys have been following Jesus for a decade or more, so you kind of know what's in Genesis 1 and 2. But if you don't have a good theological grid for understanding the literary context and the polemics behind the book of Genesis, then you end up reading Genesis primarily as a scientific textbook. And you think, okay, this is what God wants from me. I I need to be a six-day literalist when it comes to creation. Or God is trying to say, this is exactly scientifically how everything came into being. But that's not the primary purpose of Genesis. So give us a little bit more insight in what you think is happening here, Self. If we become lifelong students of theology, how does that help us read Genesis 1 and 2? Oh, man. There's so much... And you know these first few sentences of, of the scripture, but a, a good way to to think about um, 
a lot of the creation account and, and a lot of the imagery that we see in the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, um, especially with some of the laws and the commands, um, we see that it's it's heavily polemic. It's heavily... It's Can you define that for us, polemics? Yeah, so, um, so what we see going on here, what they're doing is they are appropriating, the author of Genesis is appropriating language that was being used in other religions, and they were ascribing them to Yahweh of saying, hey, you think that your God did this, right? That's what you think? Oh, let me tell you, it was actually Yahweh who created the world with his voice. Right. Um, so every Near, Near Eastern, ancient, ancient Near Eastern um, religion had a creation account. Um, but what's really interesting is that um, only one other ancient Near Eastern creation account um, includes an example of creation by speech. And can you guess where that came from? Come on, bro. Egypt. So the Mephite the- theology was the only other one in the ancient Near Eastern world that had a creation account of the world being created by speech. So Dang. what's what's going on there? And you've got to remember that Genesis was not written before Exodus. The, the Exodus event happened. So these people are freed from the, the oppression of Egypt and then they get together, and now they are recording what they have been um, preserving through oral tradition for for decades, right, for generations. Right. Um, so what they're doing is they're coming out of Egypt, and they're saying, hey, those Egyptians, they think that their god, one of their gods, created the world by speech. But we know that was Yahweh, because we saw Yahweh destroy the gods of Egypt. Right, right. So they're... they're they're poking the eyes of other religions and saying, eh, you guys think that that's cute. You guys think that, but we actually know the truth. It was Yahweh. And you guys know this too, because you saw your gods get defeated by our God, the God of Israel. And it's also in a, in a way, uh, evangelistic. It's kind of like a, a tract They're They're going around because it, w- it wasn't just the Jewish people, the Hebrew people who'd be reading these things. People were reading each other's religious texts. Totally. totally. So they're dropping, they're dropping breadcrumbs for those who are who are not uh, Hebrew people to to read and to understand that Yahweh was the God who created the world. Yeah, man, and I think it. Yeah, it really stands when you read Genesis that way. It really stands out against all of the ancient religions, and it really it shows you how beautiful the literature of Genesis is, rather than all the argumentation that we've seen over the last couple decades among Christians of mm-hmm. Are you an old Earth? theologian or a young earth theologian and well that's fine if you're either one of those things and it's fine if you have a strong stance on those things but that's not what god is primarily trying to teach us in the book of genesis for instance like like you said if we understand it as a polemic it all of a sudden just pops to us like the babylons for instance like the babylonians they had their they had their own creation story Mm -hmm. and in their creation story what happened is that their god marduk defeated a goddess called Tiamat. TMA? Do you know how to say that? Tiamat, I believe. Tiamat. Tiamat. And then he tore her carcass apart using the two halves of the two halves of the carcass to make the world. So that's where the Babylons think that creation comes from. It comes from their god ripping in half this other goddess and then using those two carcasses in order to create the world. But then you look at Genesis and you see this beautiful story of a different God, a true God, the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, who speaks poetry into the world. And we see that creation comes from love. 
That is so profound, man. Like, especially when the Israelites are going to find themselves in Babylonian captivity, right? They're going to be tormented and treated in terrible ways by the Babylons. And part of that is because creation stories have real consequences. Like, if you're, if you're Babylonian, then you literally think that the world was created from violence. Mm-hmm. So you think that the engine of creation moving forward is to create more violence. Mm-hmm. And so all of the torture that you're just pouring out and dousing on God's people is justified because that's how you keep the world going. Yep. But if you're an Israelite, man, you cling to this beautiful story of this God who created the world through speaking poetry into the world. And all of a sudden, Genesis 1 and 2 becomes not a debate against science, but a beautiful story about the nature and character of Yahweh. Yeah. You know, so the when when it talks about the deep in this creation account, the Hebrew word is tahom, um, which refers to you know, the the primordial cosmic waters of chaos. So the, the seas it was a was an image of of chaos, and so we see this God. Um, not only he's not he doesn't do away with the chaos because people know that there's chaos in the world, but he orders the chaos. He's sovereign over it and ordering it and, and providing boundaries um, and levels as to where the chaos can go. And so uh, he's, he's sovereign over the, the sea monsters that are in the deep, um, which is also you can take that and look into Exodus whenever um, Moses throws down the, st- the staff and it turns into um, a, a monster and and engulfs and eats the, the other um, staffs that were thrown down to be little snakes. Did you preach on that one? Was that you? I can't remember if I did or not. I okay. think I think I did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, yeah. that's a great yeah. text. Um, but it's it's symbolic of Yahweh being able to swallow up and control chaos. He's ordered it, and so when you look back here at Genesis one, you see him doing the same thing. He's he's sovereign over it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other people they've got to create the world through chaos, but Yahweh says, "I I control chaos. I'm over chaos. Chaos can't control me, but I can control chaos." Yeah, yeah, that's right. Ah. So this is why theology matters, church. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're not primarily looking for scientific textbook answers, but you're reading inspired literature from the God of the universe that's designed to create affections in you for God. Mm-hmm. Let's, do, let's do one more. Let's do one more example of how theology helps you see the Bible for what it really is. This is going to be a great one. This is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 17. Naaman, who is not an Israelite, has gone to Israel because he was a leper, right? Mm-hmm. And he wants healing. And he receives healing, but then he's got to go back to Syria. And 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 17 describes Naaman's response this way. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he's going back to Syria, and this is just weird, man. Like, it's just weird. He asked for two mule loads of earth. He asked for a bunch of dirt. So if you don't have theology, you read this, and you're like, oh, that's just an unimportant detail that doesn't matter. Let me just push that to the side so I can keep reading my Bible. But dude... Tell us how this changes if you have a theology of what's called cosmic geography. Okay. So this is where... <laughs> Go ahead and get your notepads out, yeah. guys. You're going to want to take notes on this. So this was mind-blowing to me. Um, 
so yeah so cosmic geography what where does that that come from um so if you really to to properly understand this there's a couple of things that that you've got to get one is the fact that that people believe that there were that there were gods that ruled and reigned over them they believed in a plurality of gods um so as a christian don't get freaked out by that don't get freaked out whenever you see little g o d s in the in the in the text don't get right. freaked out by that it's one of the places you see that it's all over in the bible yeah one of the places you see that is in deuteronomy 32 so it's this account of of post babel world so the people were supposed to spread out all over the world and be God's imagers. They refused to. They built this tower um, where they were going to summon God to come down to them, stoop to come to their level. Um, and so what you see in Deuteronomy 32 is that God, in order to accomplish his means, he divides up the nations. He, divide, he gives them languages and divides up the people into nations and ascribes to them um, and gives them over to be ruled by little g gods. But God, Yahweh, chooses Israel for himself. And so if, if that is true, which I believe that it is, then, then there is geography that, that, that certain gods had, had dominion over um, by the direction of, of Yahweh. And so if you're an ancient Near Eastern person and you believe that where you lived and your kingdom was ruled by your God or your gods, then it's important whenever you're going into other territory. This is, you know, another motivator for for these ancient empires to go and to conquer more land and more peoples, so that they could bring those other peoples and that land under the dominion of their plurality of gods. So when Naaman comes in and he seeks to be healed, he seeks to be cleansed, um, and he is by a very you know unorthodox way, a way that made him upset at first, um, but dipping down into a dirty river and then coming back up and his leprosy, his skin disease is, is gone. So yeah, who cares about your preconceived notions of what's right and wrong yeah. if God heals you? Exactly. And so he's just seen this miracle perform. He's just experienced this miracle. Um, he now knows that Yahweh is the is the God. I'm on his team. Uh-huh. Um, let me try to see where is this at. Um, so yeah, so he, he gets... He gets healed by Yahweh. And so now he's, he shifts his allegiance and his loyalty and his affection to Yahweh. And so he makes this statement and says, Hey, I'm not going to offer any other, um, any other sacrifices to, to the gods that I used to worship. Um, so he, he says this because he now understands that Yahweh is the God of gods, that Yahweh is the one who controls everything, who has all of the power. And so what he wants to do is take back two loads of dirt <laughs> i love it dude why the heck is he doing that well because give me some turf from this football yeah, field yahweh and it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because my uh, grandpa has um a chunk of turf from the university of tennessee's football field the, the year that they won the the uh, national championship sacred ground sacred ground baby and so that's what naaman he believes that this this ground belongs to yahweh so i'm gonna take it back to where i live but I'm going to use this to worship Yahweh. Right. You know, and there's so many cool things about the story of Naaman, but you, you got to use, use your imagination here. Is he keeping it in his pockets whenever he's, you know, forced to go into an idolatrous temple to go with, you know, the king? 
while he goes and prays to while the king prays to his god. Isn't that uh, great to think about? Yeah, that? is he having his pockets and he's you know putting Sneaking his fingers it in. in it and he's you know praying and meditating on the goodness of Yahweh while his king who is his boss is you know praying to whatever god to to Baal. Is yeah. he? Does he take it at home at night and he does he put it on his floor in his in his bedroom and kneel right. on it and pray? Does he keep it in jars and look at it? Does he plant a garden with it? Like what did he do with it? But it's he understood that this was it was sacred ground. Stick it to the bottom of his sandal yeah. somehow. What what was he doing with it? Yeah, I don't know. I joked about when Malachi was born to take a scoop full of some Texas soil and put it under the hospital bed. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah. but people really, we still do think that way. We, we believe right. in sacred ground. Um, but that has a whole new meaning there. Is it just some, some weird old, you know, ancient thing that Naaman did? Yeah, it was, but it's far more significant if you do the theological work. Yeah. And the cool thing that you see in the book of Exodus is that sacred ground, one of God's desires is to make it portable in mm-hmm. the book of Exodus. And so all of a sudden you see God having all these people contribute and chip into building this tabernacle, which is designed to be sacred ground mm-hmm. in the middle of an unsacred world. So you see all of this, all this imagery of Genesis and the garden and these cherubim woven into the curtains of the temple and these cherubim statues and all this imagery is designed to get you thinking, oh, this is supposed to be heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. But there's all like, when you read about the development of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, there's all these details about every item has to like, they've got to build poles for it. Mm-hmm. Like you got to build poles for this and you got to build poles for the Ark of the Covenant. You got to build poles for this. And it's because this was meant to be taken on the run. And it was, it was holy ground and there were sinful people. They couldn't touch it. Mm-hmm. So they developed these poles so they could carry it everywhere with them, right? And so they're like, out there kind of doing what Naaman is doing, yeah. but with the temple. And you get to the New Testament and you realize, oh my gosh, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, he makes us into tabernacles. Mm-hmm. He makes us into temples, which is to say he makes us into holy ground. We're sacred Whoa. space now. We're sacred space now. Yeah. Man, that little nugget right there, has, it revolutionized the way that I that I read the New Testament. I did, my theology of, of the New Testament and the importance of, um, you know, viewing my body as a temple, like that didn't change, but it was, it was strengthened. There's more, another layer of beauty was, I was able to, to observe another layer of beauty. So why don't we, yeah, why do we yeah. flee from sexual immorality? That's because our bodies are temples. That's right. What is a temple? What's a tabernacle? That's where God's presence is. Boom. So if my body is, is a vessel for God's presence to dwell in, that, that is huge. That's huge. And so, yeah, um, yeah. that just, it, it takes on, you know, further, it, it's another angle of the diamond to, to view it with. Um, and it just has brought great joy in my life. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this is why theology matters. All of a sudden, rather than saying, oh, this is weird that he asked for two mule loads of earth. I'll just keep reading my Bible. All of a sudden, you're stunned by the beauty of what's happening right here. Mm-hmm. Like, like you, like you, you were using your imagination a little bit ago. Like what, what is Naaman doing? Is he like, is he smuggling it in with his pockets? Is he smuggling it in with his two handfuls? I mean, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do get this image in our head of Naaman smuggling in this sacred space into this unholy secular world. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that your sacred space now 
then the same thing that Naaman is doing, smuggling some dirt with him into like on sacred ground, is what God is doing with you when you go to work in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, if you work at a secular job or if you work at a, at a non-Christian job or whatever, God is smuggling a few mule loads of sacred <laughs> space into that work. Because his ultimate goal is, and this is the ultimate comeback story. In, in 2 Kings verse 5, we see it's two mule loads of earth versus Syria. Dude, mm-hmm. the odds are against those two mule loads of earth. But when we look at the book of Revelation, we see that the two mule loads of earth win and mm-hmm. that God will come back and he will make all of creation into sacred space. Dude, Yeah, I, I, that to me um, has heightened my appreciation and importance of gathering as a church where we're, we're yeah. these you know little specks of dirt that represent God's cosmic geography. And when we come together and we clump together, we, we provide a more full picture for ourselves and for the onlooking world of what new creation is going to look like. Sweet Where dude. everywhere is God's cosmic geography. He's not restricted on, or limit him, limiting himself yes. to just a, one little plot of land, but the entire land so sweet, is where dude. his presence is. So sweet. Okay, so church, those are just four examples of reading the scriptures that just demonstrate why you should develop a theological education because it will absolutely transform the way that you engage with the scriptures. But before we close out, self, is there any other like way you want to encourage our church to dig deep in theology or kind of any parting shots? Yeah, there's so many good resources that are free these days. And one of those is uh, Logos um, Bible software. They have a free version and it's incredible. It will greatly help you um, to be a student of the scriptures and to increase your affection for, um, for God. And so, um, I would hi- highly suggest down, download Logos that they've got it. You can get it on your iPad, your phone, your computer, your whatever tablet you use. If you're some random Android user, you can download that as well. <laughs> um, but just the free version and download the faith life study Bible and the Lexham English Bible. Download those. Those, those are free. Mm-hmm. Um, download those and it will, really, really help you dig into the scriptures. Um, as with all study Bibles, it has its limitations and um, it might, you know, it's a compilation of various editors and uh, theologians who do that. So there might be some discrepancies for your particular theological leanings. But and if you want something that will help you understand the original languages languages um, that are being used here, not a master of it, um, but understand a little bit more and some, a lot of the historical context, download that, that resource. It is amazing um, for studying the scriptures. And then, yeah, um, what's a couple of the books that have been really helpful for... Um, for me, I'll just go with one. I'll go with one. There's a book called Supernatural um, by Michael Heiser. Um, I disagree with with his soteriology, his theology of salvation, um, but he's still in the bounds of orthodoxy and is still a faithful follower and lover of Jesus. Totally. Um, but if you want to get a picture of some of the things that we have mentioned uh, today, like the angel of Yahweh, cosmic geography, and understanding the ancient um, Near Eastern worldview better, that's a really short, really um, well-written book that anyone can access. It's not an academic book. It's really helpful. Um, so, yeah, those would be two resources I have. Sweet. Well, let's end this way. We, as, as a local church, we want to be devoted to your theological development. I think in a lot of ways you can listen to the conversation that Andrew and I just had, and you can be really energized by it. You can be like, whoa, 
There is a level of depth and complexity and beauty to the scriptures that I did not know existed underneath the surface, and I am breathless now. But there's also a way of listening to our conversation by thinking like, dude, I can't. Like, what you guys are doing with the scriptures, I'm not there yet. And what you guys got to know is that this conversation is like, this is the result of several decades of intense, rigorous theological studies. So if you go back to your scriptures today and read it and don't get there, like don't beat yourself up. But we want to be committed to helping you develop theologically as a follower of Jesus. So let me introduce you to something new for Frontier Church this coming year. Porterbrook Quad Cities. Okay, what is Porterbrook? Porterbrook Quad Cities is a locally based theological training program designed to develop real leaders in the real stuff of life. So get your journal out, write down some notes here. But Porterbrook is based out of Sacred City in the Quad Cities. And this year, it has the potential to be the partnership of four or five Acts 29 churches in the area. Harvest City in Iowa City, Sacred City in the Quad Cities in Moline, even old Nick Powell. One arm Nick. Oh, one arm Nick is thinking about jumping into this with his core team in Clinton with Hope City. And I would love for Frontier Church to jump in with these churches too. So, yes, it's a theologically based training program. But for me, the real win is that you guys would be getting exposure to great gospel centered theology from somebody who isn't Frontier Church. That's important to me because I want you guys to see that there are other like minded churches out there and that Frontier isn't like the only church in the world who is doing down-to-earth, gritty, gospel-centered theology and loves deep doctrine and isn't, isn't self-righteous about it. We're not. There's tons of churches out there doing this. And you'll get to experience this with multiple churches in the Iowa area, and that gets me psyched about Porterbrook. So let me continue to drop some clarity on this. Who is Porterbrook for? Anybody who desires to develop a gospel-centered theological, theological education at Frontier Church without going to seminary. So if you're an aspiring pastor, community group leader, an aspiring fighter group leader, or if you just want to grow in your theology, this is for you. Porterbrook is going to take place in three 10-week terms, and it's got three components. Content, so you're going to study on your own. Cohort, so you'll be paired up with a couple different frontier people. And seminar days happen four times a year where we'll all jump into vans, drive down to the Quad Cities, and learn under unbelievable, exceptional speakers and leaders. So if you're thinking about this, if this sounds interesting to you, what's the process? Well, here's the process. Sign up online with the one-year application to Porterbrook and then reach out to me and let me know that you did that. Then I'll develop a list of men and women in Frontier who are taking Porterbrook this year, and I'll find a way to split those into little cohorts of three to four people. I'll make that link available in the comments section of the social media post, and I'll make the link available to this to the Porterbrook Year One application available in the church email this week. But the application for this is due August 15th next month. So start thinking about it right now. And by the way, this is 400 bucks, which... This is good because we want you to have some skin in the game and also because it funds some excellent speakers and teachers to come help us so that we're getting top-of-the-line theological education and development. But if that's a barrier for you, reach out to me and we'll try to figure out some way to, to get you into Porterbrook still because I'll do anything to give people who want to grow an opportunity to grow in their theological education. So if you're listening to this podcast, I think you should do it or you should consider doing it. 
But regardless, guys, be devoted to your theological education as a follower of Jesus. We hope that this podcast helps you follow Jesus, grow in your theological understanding of who he is, and we also hope that it helps you worship local. We love you guys.